course engagement levels for many years has shown that many office workers are disenchanted and disengaged save for maybe you know new companies like your your company Kramer so there's um this link between people and place is now on people's radar and the interesting thing is the real estate industry will have to pay attention to this as well it's interesting we what we found we had been moving towards similarly when you wrote this book Krima had been moving towards a hybrid work structure already right so we were having Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got co-host George Brooks back, and we've got Chris Kane. Chris, I'm going to actually let you introduce yourself. I think you've got an interesting background. We want to hear about the book, but but talk about your career for a minute first. Oh, my God. Well, good to meet you guys. Many people describe me as um, an industry maverick in the real estate world. I come from a really, really small village of less than 100 people in Ireland. I grew up uh, in farming and, and local bars and stuff like that. And then went to college. First time I found to go to college and then found myself without a job in Ireland in the early 80s. So I did like many Irish people. I either had an option of going left to the States or going right to Britain. So I, I thought it was the shorter hop to London was easier. Found myself a job in one of the world's largest real estate firms, which is now known as JLL. Rose to the rank of partner there. Helped found their corporate services group in the late 80s. And then a really funny thing happened to me in about the mid-90s. I got one of these strange phone calls from a person with an American accent. This was really intriguing. He said, you're a partner. You've been at the Jones Lang for years. What about a new adventure? And I I didn't know what to, to say to the guy. And he didn't tell me who it was. But 17 interviews later, I signed up to work for the Walt Disney Company. So I'm one of the few people on your show who can honestly claim he had a Mickey Mouse job for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> That opened my eyes, um, and I would say that I have a strong affinity for the U.S. I know you're, enough of your country, as to say in Ireland, to be dangerous, in that I've visited most of the major cities, but I've now got two reasons to, to visit different states, like Utah and Kansas, which are states I haven't visited yet, but I know where you live now, guys, so I'll be looking you up in the, when we all get back traveling. And that was an amazing experience. And, you know, going to California and learning about uh, Southern California and then learning Mm. about the diversity of the United States, East Coast, West Coast, the Midwest and all things in between really enabled me to understand the world through different lens and to understand cultural diversity and to start start to make sense of organization. But you were also, as a real estate person, I was really yanked out of my, my comfort zone. And it was a hell of a learning curve as I moved from a very traditional British pinstripe suit, Wall Street equivalent type role into you know jeans and chinos and T-shirts and Southern California. And for an Irish person who's very accustomed to wet weather, the sun. Mm-hmm. 
highway. It's in between. But probably the most important thing of that period of my life was that I got to understand the power of brand. And I got to understand the, the whole Disney ethos of um, if you can dream it, you can do it. So fast forward seven years, I ended up with responsibility for all of Disney's international real estate. And then I did a tour of duty in the US to sort of the global head and all that side of things. And then another one of those calls took place. And this time it was a very traditional British accent who said, would you like to work for the world's largest broadcaster, the British Broadcasting Corporation? And how do you fancy being in charge of a $2 billion transformation program? And I said, sure, no problem. But uh, I, was, I, was, I was certainly bluffing it out. And it really, really took me out of my comfort zone, taking a big leadership step up to run two and a half thousand person strong team and dealing with multi-million dollar projects and a billion dollar project was the biggest one and working for this organization which also was big in brand but also had this huge broadcasting public service remit and I learned a lot and but I also was catapulted into huge organizational change and unlike many traditional or mainstream real estate folk because, you know, for most corporate real estate folk, you you typically are an order taker and will do this or do that. And whereas we in the BBC were fortunate enough because of circumstances more than anything to get to turn the real estate portfolio into a strategic asset and support the whole organizational transformation. So not only did I learn a lot about doing massive projects at pace. We had four mega projects all going simultaneously from a million square feet to 200,000 square feet to 400,000 square feet. And it was all it was all intermingled in terms of dates and challenges and stuff. So it was a, a big problem. And then there was the whole organizational transformation. And I got to create and build a new city in the north of England called Media City. So that was another fantastic bit of that of that journey. And I guess that gave me, you know, I, I've been really, really fortunate in terms of being exposed to all of this. Many people said it's the look of the Irish, but the, the look of the Irish actually really rubbed off in the last couple of years because at 55, I decided I wanted to do something different. And when I was at the BBC, and actually when I was at Disney, I was advised, don't get caught up too much in your main gig. Find a, a couple of non-exec director roles to broaden your perspective as you're you're now stepping up to more senior positions. You need to understand this. So way back in 2000, I started my first non-exec director role and learning how to sit on the board and look at things strategically. So I had, I had this dual perspective and I've had so for the last 20 years. And there's a whole different story about the non-exec journey, but the... it. That was all going along hand in hand with the BBC. And then I said, I want to do something different. And another friend said, you've got to write a book about what you've done, because very few people in real estate would have managed to do a quarter, if not a, a third of what I got up to. And after a lot of scratching my head and say, OK, I'll give it a go. It took a lot longer to write than I thought, but I started a new business and uh, did some more entrepreneurial activities and you know, gave something back. Jess, I, I share um, an interest, as you do, in the context of giving back. And one of my real focuses is, is homeless youth in London, 
for example, tonight, even in a lovely spring evening here, you know, with good temperatures, there will be probably in the order of 150 to 200, 200 teenage kids riding the all-night buses because there are no emergency shelters for these homeless kids who find themselves without a home for a variety of reasons. Who are we to judge? But that's, you know, in a wealthy city such as London, that's just not, that's not acceptable. So that was part of part of some of the stuff I do and homelessness general, generally, given that I know how much money is made out of real estate, it doesn't do any harm at all to give something back. So I've been doing that and writing the book and learning how to write. And it was an amazing challenge. And then I discovered I needed to find a publisher. And my God, I really struggled with that. I got so many Dear John letters saying, nah, nah. And then out of the blue in 2019, Bloomsbury, the, the Harry Potter publisher said, yeah, we'll give you a rookie novelist with a good, with a good uh, storyline, which is called Where's My Office? And they said, we'll publish you. And I'm still recovering from the shock. And I I wrote the vast majority bar two paragraphs and about 15 or 16 sentences pre-lockdown. And much of the stuff that's in the book is about coping or moving to a different way of doing sort of office work. So the look of the Irish really rubbed off. We have uh, experienced a great uh, deal of interest in helping people how to figure this stuff out because all the rules have been broken and you know you look at your homeland your your love affair with commuting for example i think is now in the final chapter even in kansas city i would suggest mm-hmm. oh yeah you know my i mean so, my commute went from well I'm what 30 to 40 minutes to nothing so hmm. yeah well, it's, it was a massive change <laughs> let's do this george for for people, why don't you give people a quick refresher on your background? It's It's been a while since you were on last. And then why don't you yeah. start us off with your first question for Chris? Yeah, I'd love to. So yeah, my a little bit about me. I mean, I, I think just as a reminder, my, my focus is on building teams, right? So if we really think that the basics of what my company, Crema, does and is really to try to think about how do you bring together a group of diverse individuals, usually with a, a number of different skill sets, design, technology, development, test engineering, et cetera, and deploy them into really complex problems, whether that's building software for cybersecurity or building solutions for management consulting, or even a space, Chris, that we're really interested in right now is property tech. Where How is technology going to be a huge asset as you start thinking about this new way of working? So I want to kind of use that as a little bit of a, a bridge to to throw it back to you. Chris, you, you write, The Luck of the Irish, talk about writing a book at the right time in human history when every single organization in the world would have to rethink, where is my office? What's that looked like? What are the conversations been like through your associate group or from your book? What are the the challenges that people have been coming to you talking about? Sure. Well, George, it's it's, it's a great question. And it actually has a lot to do with what you guys do in terms of team building. In that, you know, I came up with the, the title for the book, Where's My Office, while shaving one morning. And I was thinking about lots of projects I'd been involved with around the world. And in particular what was BBC North America in the Avenue of the Americas in New York, where 
and this is God eight ten years ago when the then president Herb said, "I don't want a corner office. I want to leave that space open for teamwork." And this was unheard of for many organizations in New York City at that time because you know, I mean, the 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 corner office, the executive car parking slot are are the symbols of a leader having made it. And mm-hmm. I was seeing and have been, you know, for 15, 20 years that all of these things, these facets of leadership, which are associated with real estate, they're, they, they were being eroded slowly but surely as, you know, the war for talent demanded that, you know, you had things like in, prop, in, in technology, Glassdoor, that staff were actually questioning, do I want to work for these organizations? And, you know, pre-pandemic, pre, uh, we heard a lot about the workplace experience and we heard a lot about authentic leadership. And we were also beginning to hear about ESG and about ethical and, and social and, you know, all investment side of things. So all this stuff was happening slowly for the last 10, 15 years. And COVID came along. And the best way in the context of real estate, I would say, to try and answer your question is 10, 15 years ago, the technology advances, you know, the smartphone, cloud computing, etc., freed up the office worker from their desk. Like if you go into most offices, I bet you in your office in Kansas City, none of your people have one fixed desk with a computer and that thing called fixed desk telephone. Do you remember those? All on our iPhones, all on laptops. Yep. Exactly. So what happened then was, and this is huge implications for real estate, as I'll explain in a moment, but what happened then was the umbilical cord between the office worker and, and and their desk, one person, one desk, which is the driver for how you plan occupancy for buildings, which then drives the occupancy of the building itself and the investment return, yada, yada, yada. But what happened now in the last 12, 14 months, whatever, you know, we have endured right around the world a global pandemic, which involved huge loss of life, dreadful suffering on the part of many. And, you know, we've just seen the physical. We haven't seen the mental fallout yet. We're going to see a lot of economic carnage. So we don't know where we're heading in all of this. But one of the things that has done, it's it's actually cut the last remaining link of people to place. So a lot of folk right around the world, and I've done enough interviews with folks like you, professional podcasters from the East Coast to the West Coast, from North to South, and everybody in the US is saying the same as they're saying over here in Europe and South uh, Africa, in Singapore and Australia, that uh, things are very, very different And most people are asking some fundamental questions that they never thought of asking before. One of the most easy ones, which goes right across, why do I commute to a downtown office location or a suburban office park just to send emails? Mm -hmm. There has to be something more. And that goes back to team building and it goes back to management and it goes back to leadership. And all of these organizational HR aspects have now come to the fore like never before. And for the first time ever, they are all intrinsically linked to how much space enterprises will need to consume in the real estate market. And that's another curious I'm curious as to see what what are you seeing has changed? Is I mean obviously there's the, the the fully remote, which we're seeing in organizations, corporations that are going 
to making a decision to say, everyone is distributed, everyone is fully remote, we'll cut completely out of our costs. And then of course, there's those that are coming back with this conversation around whatever it might yeah. be called, hybrid, hybrid or uh, some hybrid is the, Sure. Hybrid is certainly the, the current buzzword. And I honestly think that we're going through a period of experimentation. And that yeah. whilst, you know, I mean, the, these topics have never hit mainstream media like they have, they've never before. You know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times. Everyone is talking about this whole debate, office versus remote or hybrid. And it will be one week on, one week off, three days in, two days, whatever. And I honestly think that it will be a patchwork quilt and it will evolve over time. And George, you made a really interesting point. We haven't seen the impact yet of the next round of technology innovation that will enable people to work very, very differently. What's happened is that CEOs have now recognized that we can do things differently. Right across the States, I'm hearing from people saying, God, that was a bit of a challenge, but the wheels didn't come off our businesses by and large. So we're okay. Now, many of them are also thinking, especially CFO type characters, hey, I can cut my real estate footprint dramatically and I can get all my people working from home. And then you're hearing and seeing stuff like people leaving Silicon Valley. We're seeing many towns and cities in your states who are saying, why not move to my state, my town, and I'll give you ten or $15,000, you know, right. uh, also, Oklahoma being one example. So there's there's a whole new dynamic emerging. I think anyone that tells us that here's the way forward will be uh, mistaken, because I think the the current thinking is a very mixed picture. And mm-hmm. we're also looking at to what I would call the totem poles or the or the poster kids, the Googles, the Facebooks, the big name companies. But what's what, what's Procter and Gamble doing in Cincinnati, for example? What mm-hmm. is what I call mainstream or Main Street corporate America doing, or what what is SMEs doing? Like I'm doing some work with them, a group of CPAs in Orange County in California, and their you know businesses are all fifty to five hundred people, so they're trying to figure this stuff out and. They've never had to do it before because it was a given that you worked in an office or in a factory or in a shop and you commuted from your home. Now, the the shop or the retail mile probably doesn't change that much, nor does the factory or the distribution. But this thing called offices, and, you know, there's a substantial portion of the U.S. workforce which are employed by corporations in these things called office buildings. But for the first time ever, Since they were invented, people are thinking about these office buildings and they've been designed and operated by corporations as a a legacy of the industrial age. If you think back to, you know, rows and rows of desks or of cubicles, you know, American corporates are famous for your cubes and they view people as numbers. You're, Mm -hmm. You're a number of payroll. Now, you operate, George, a very successful creative business, and that's all dependent upon creativity and collaboration. And you won't do that in an environment which doesn't help. So that was one of the other reasons I wrote the book was to help business leaders understand that if you can develop a productive workplace, 
chances are you will have a productive workforce. And little did I realize then that the whole debate would be catapulted into the, the spotlights as a consequence of COVID, because it's it's a complicated thing to understand. And, you know, most people have tried to uh, squeeze people into big office floors with poor air conditioning and poor natural daylighting. All the, the peripheral space was taken up by executive offices who were hardly ever there because they were traveling all the time. So there was a sense of inequality. The Gallup polls of U.S. workforce engagement levels for many years has shown that many office workers are disenchanted and disengaged, save for maybe, you know, new companies like your, your company, Kramer. So there's um, this link between people and place is now on people's radar. And the interesting thing is the real estate industry will have to pay attention to this as well. It's interesting. We What we found, we had been moving towards, similarly, when you wrote this book, Crema had been moving towards a hybrid work structure already, right? So we were having employees that were going to be working outside of our, our city, our community, that would be outside of our real estate footprint. We had two main offices. And you know what? We were, we're, we're a small organization. So we only had, what, 10, 15,000 square feet, which I've since learned if you're in London, that seems like massive amounts of space and we had lots of room to move around. But primarily the reason that we had that space and even where we had it being in the arts district in our, our city here in Kansas City, it was a recruiting tool. The actual real estate footprint was it was come work at a place like this. Come come into an environment like this and you'll experience work like you've never experienced before. That's now had to change because we're no longer using the real estate as a as a recruiting branding. You talked about branding earlier with your time at Walt Disney and or at BBC. How are you seeing companies have to shift their recruitment model, their their branding model, their positioning model towards using less of the real estate and more into how they they think about their teamwork? Yeah, it's it's a, that's a that's a really interesting question, and I my simple answer is it depends on the industry the sector it's in, where it is in its life cycle, and most importantly, its leadership, and yeah. by definition, then its culture. But I, I would push back in a sense in that you know many people in the media have said the office is dead. The office is not dead per se, but the system underpinning it needs a massive overhaul. So your office in downtown Kansas City is exactly the right place for what I understand the, your company is because it fits in with your culture and it's coherent mm-hmm. and it projects the brand. But the what's been missing for many offices is that, you know, I mean, they're in large towers, they're anonymous, there's full of people who tell you you can't do stuff. So that's where the real estate industry has to actually go through a transformation to move away from what I call just dry leasing and correct and collecting rent to offering space as a service. So that real estate, for example, around the world is one of the few sectors of our economy which is yet to face major disruption. It is also, as you guys are well and sort of connected with the art of marketing and all of that, it has never had to face, as one of your prior interviewees talked about, you know, disruptive innovation and, and all of that side of things. Because it doesn't know who its customer is. It thinks its customer is the property investor. And it is presumed that the folk who lease the space, who pay the rent, are a hostage to fortune. And the best example I can give you of that is, I bet you in your lease contract, your company is known as the tenant. And you are, your counterparty is the landlord. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of history for you guys. Yeah, right. Well, I see where you're going here. You inherited <laughs> this from the Brits. 
Because in medieval times in Britain, and this goes back to agricultural times when the farmers came to pay their taxes to the local lords and they came on a quarterly basis. And that's how the, the tradition and you guys haven't copied it in the US. You pay your rents on monthly basis. But here in Brexit Blighty, many commercial occupiers still pay their rents quarterly in advance. So you pay three months in advance and you pay it on the strange dates, which have continued since medieval times. You pay on Michaelmas Day, Lady Day, Annunciation Day and Christmas Day. How about that? I love it. I had no idea. That's fantastic. Well, Chris, my my question there is, you know, with us ramping up our real estate fund right now, and we're trying to bring, you know, Warren Buffett principles to real estate, kind of more like a like a Brookfield asset management style, you know, go look yeah. for the stuff that's unpopular that that everybody knows is terrible. And you go look for the diamonds in the rough that people have passed over, right? And like, we've got yeah. friends right now who are buying, you know, a, a three story office building on the edge of Phoenix, close to the nice neighborhood. That's a real easy in and out for that CEO of, of the growing company or something and has 98, yeah. 98% rent collection, but has a really attractive cap rate because everybody knows office is a terrible investment during COVID. It just, the numbers, yeah. the numbers don't agree with that assessment in his case. And, and you hear about these, you know, Google and Facebook, they keep buying more and more space in Manhattan right now. And, and they plan on after the, you know, densifying of offices for how many decades they plan on giving people more room. And so thinking about folks like us that we're looking for opportunities in the places that aren't popular yet, what, what kind of principles should we be considering when it comes to the future of office? Right. So let's agree the day rate first for the fee for your advice on this. Yeah, right. Um, Okay, I'm joking in a sense, but it's a really good question. And the I think the dynamics of real estate investment are going to change considerably. I think you're going to see a much more distributed pattern for where people have an office activity, not an office building, but an office activity. And the best way I can describe this to you is to tell you a little story about a chat I had with a chief technology officer in Nashville, Tennessee, when I was writing the book. And we were chewing the fat on um, you know, what, the, what technology was doing to work and the impact of prop tech and the, the rise of agility and mobility. And we, Dave, came up with the idea, said, you know, real estate is going to go the way retail went when they had to react to the birth of online marketing. And they came up with the understanding their customer journey, which is another thing most real estate folk do not even understand the term. And the customer journey in retail gave birth to another aspect of marketing called omnichannel marketing. So I believe what's going to happen to office real estate and office consumption is a version of that, which I've called omni-working. You can work any place, anywhere, anytime, and with anyone. Now, the smart real estate investor and fund will choose locations such as yours, and you won't be the first. I've spoken to a number of other asset managers across the states who are you know, people with, say, apartment REITs and portfolios who are going to inject a a local work hub into their complexes, you know, the the likes of, you know, two, three hundred, four hundred apartments. 
have five, 6,000 square feet of space where people can work because not every apartment building is suitable for a home office. Most American suburban homes do have a yard and probably a bit of spare space that you can do this. But the other big fallacy is working from home en masse on a permanent basis is not really viable because we're social animals. And George, to your earlier point, you will need to get your people together for some time for some things. And the this is where the dilemma, Jess, of your investment world is, is going to really need to rethink of moving into a very different dynamic, one which you're still stuck in the analog time. It's either one or the other, whereas enterprises have had to embrace the digital world and working across multiple fronts and multiple settings for some years now. And the pandemic and the economic carnage that is associated with such is only going to accelerate it. So many smart corporations are going to say, like like Standard Chartered Bank in Singapore is the best case study I've found so far. So what they've offered all 75,000 of their employees is choice. They can go into the motherships, the big downtown HQ buildings they have in every city across Asia and in London and New York. But they can also, for those that wish, work from home some of the time. Then they've also opened up a lot of their bank branches and created local work hubs. And they also have the ability to partner with IWG Regis. So all their staff have an IWG Regis card so they can go into a Regis work hub. And they call it near home working. So that's a a variant on a theme. And that's what encouraged me to think that actually this is going to be this omni working label is probably a better one because it, it deals with the fact that we've moved into a digital world completely. We've moved from process to knowledge. We certainly moved from silo to systems. And we certainly move from very static to fluid. Now, this is going to be a real challenge for you investment real estate folk because you've been accustomed to a fixed income which you can finance and you can get your margin and you can get a nice living out of it. So end of a long answer. I would suggest to you that you get into real estate as a service along with smart purchasing of assets because at best you generate average returns from dry leasing in the order of eight, nine percent. If you add on a service component, you have a, an operations business with an IRR in the teens. Well, so that's my bit of free advice. Well, what I need to do is I need to hire George to have Crema build us an app to help companies make this transition and have a subscription yeah. to our multiple asset types across the city. Absolutely. And uh, George, you better hurry up because there's a lot of people thinking along the same lines. But just think about it. You know, what we can do at the moment in our sort of non-work lives with Facebook and all the others, TripAdvisor and all the others that we can, it can tell us, say, if we were all in LAX, for example, you know, with certain apps, it would ping and say, hey, do you realize that George and Jess are there and they're flying American or whatever? So that type of equivalent is going to come into the workplace. Now, lots of middle managers will not like this because, you know, I mean, most enterprises are run on a very traditional hierarchical model. And another remarkable American writer called Gary Hamill recently published a book called Humanocracy and why we need to get rid of bureaucracy. And it follows then that if enterprises are going to change 
and the technology and the automation, and we haven't talked about automation at all yet, which is a whole new game ball, enterprises are going to change, which means it flows into the demand for space. So don't go long on commercial real estate, Jess. Well, I, I'm I'm very bullish on commercial real estate, but I'm very bullish on the next versions. You see what Rick Caruso does in LA with yeah. the Grove, and and you know your real estate as a service model. It like real estate is so great that you can even be kind of bad at it and still make money. So the bar isn't always so oh, high. Yeah. Well, now, yeah, for sure. It's, 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 it's easy. It's like taking candy off a kid because most enterprises have to go to a downtown location or to a groovy location such as George's in Kansas City because that's what gave you a chance to attract the talent. And then you had to factor in, you know, 10 years ago, we all were putting computer rooms into our office buildings. We had the executive levels. We had maybe a, a restaurant. We had desks, etc. Now you can be far smarter with how you consume space. You can still have your downtown location to get that brand proposition, but it's going to be it's going to be much more dynamic. And, you know, there's been a remarkable amount of innovation from the U.S. real estate market organizations such as, you know, Convene, for example, which offers corporations the ability to, you know, I mean, to grow into their space when they need, say, the big two, three hundred person meeting rather than having a space allocation for a 200, 300 person meeting in their in their lease contract. So there's this whole dynamic function, which it's all part of service. You know, basically, the office sector is going to be very similar to the hotel industry within a couple of years. Well, and I think you saw organizations, I mean, that broke the ground of this were people like WeWork, right? That was basically yeah. just buying up. I mean, they became one of the largest real estate holders in the yeah. in the in the asset of moving to a service. I mean, they offered it Absolutely. as a service. They made these beautiful spaces that were mixed use, mixed company, and and they're still trying to figure out how to make that work at scale. But we're even seeing yeah. here in Kansas City. That they're, of course they have two or three downtown locations, and now they're starting to put them in the burbs. They're putting in them in the suburban environments where it is closer to where people are working, and that's being really effective. That we have a, a client that we're working with right now that's going to be flipping a large real estate footprint that was a former global corporation based here in Kansas City, and they are they're repurposing an old cubicle farm real estate pl- footprint into multi living retail and workplace which will have a big kind of you lease it, you use it when you need it kind of uh, move. And I think that yeah. hybrid is going to be a big, big move. Absolutely. And you know the, the, the benefit to the overall market, some would say benefit, some would say disbenefit of WeWork, is it's not about WeWork itself. Mm. There were many, many organizations offering flexible solutions. IWG Regis, founded by Mark Dixon, you know, has been around since 1989. And it's a substantial company. What WeWork did was it opened up the possibility of choice and it spent, I think, a billion dollars, it's rumored, on marketing and promotion. So what was a an unknown feature from a C-suite perspective, the real estate folk knew about it and all that, but what WeWork did was they very cleverly got it onto, onto mainstream media. And the general business leaders say, what's this WeWork stuff? We didn't realize we could have choice. 
So what's been happening with the real estate sector pre-COVID, and COVID just threw rocket fuel on it, was that what it was the same to what happened with the consumer goods industry, that the power of the, the market moved from the producer to the consumer. And we're now seeing real consumer choice on the part of the occupier, the tenant, which is unheard of, you know. Take Britain, for example, there's something like uh, 4 million square feet of office space in London, there's 3 million square feet, for example, in Manhattan. So there's never been a, a time in British history where supply dramatically exceeded demand. Demand always exceeded supply. So historically, a bit like Wall Street, the, the city of London is one square mile. If you were in the banking industry or in the insurance industry, you had to be within that area. So that artificially you know, drove up prices. That's changed considerably over time. But but that was the way of thinking. And, you know, real estate world hasn't changed its mind that much. And then along came WeWork. And suddenly they there was in mainstream media rather than the professional press. And then, of course, the failed IPO was a disaster, obviously, for the WeWork and Adam Newman. But actually what it did was it actually uh, accentuated the awareness factor in in the boards, not in the corporate real estate teams, in the boards. And then COVID came along and it, one of the consequences of COVID will be recognized as the long established principle of presenteeism, which is the bedrock of traditional hierarchical management, was well and truly broken. Mm. Mm. I'm, I'm looking at Jess. I, I'm, I, we've had a lot of conversations around this, this topic and kind of where where the future of this is going to go. I'm kind of curious, Chris, from, from your perspective, as we're, we're kind of wrapping up here, what, what is something that you're paying attention to now as you know, you've had, we've had this full year of organizations really having to figure out, thank God for right cloud computing, for teleconferencing, for the technology we did have in place right now. What's, what's going to be the shift? I know we're all experimenting, but what are you seeing that are the experiments that, that organizations, corporations, real estate is, is running right now? I, I think for the most part, certainly the big poster child type organizations, the vast majority of them are keeping their cards very close to their chest. And they're really, you know, Facebook said we're still trying to figure things out. Some have made some announcements saying get back by the summer or by Labor Day. I think that's the general consensus across the U.S. that Labor Day is the signal. But underpinning all of that, which I guess is not being spoken about, is that CFOs are really thinking hard about, A, how do I protect my people and my resilience of my business? Because like it or not, we're in pandemic times for the foreseeable future. If you haven't read it, you need to read the World Economic Forum, the risks, trends analysis for this year. It makes for very mm-hmm. salutary reading, particularly if you're in the investment market world. You know, you need to pay attention to this stuff. But the so people don't know. And that will drive what I think uh, is a massive shift from fixed to fluid. And I think most organizations are going to be thinking about resilience and risk and reframing. And, you know, what we haven't talked about is automation, nor we haven't talked about the impact of ESG and climate change. You know, we're certainly in the last chance saloon in the context of climate change. Witness what's happened in the West Coast of wildfires, the snow in Texas and the apparently the imminent risk that half of Florida will be underwater within 10, 15 years. 
And that's not to say what else is going to happen around the world. So that's why COVID has not only changed the game, but it's changed the entire stadium. So for anyone to forecast the future in April 2021, I think it's a very risky thing to do. I think we're in a period of six to 12 months of massive experimentation. Some companies will be braver than others. The big absence is what are what are the policymakers thinking about this? You know, I know that sort of the government services body, the GSA in the US, who looks after all federal buildings, are looking at uh, dynamic working and agile working and how to do all of that. So, which is a good sign. But you know, what's what are states thinking about? You know, employment law. You know, the issue of that some states have no tax and others have, and the flight from California to Texas, etc. Lots of big issues there. The the best example I can say a proud Irishman is that the Irish government has uh, announced its first remote working policy which will be law in the next couple of months which talks about mm. worker rights broadband infrastructure and the creation of remote working hubs across the country so that sort of underpins this massive fi- from move from fixed to fluid fluid and you know, it's so complicated that, and the economic, the other uh, sort of byproducts of the last 14 months, we still got to feel about that. I hope that maybe we can look to a better world, a world which is more focused on on the human. You know, I, I think maybe we're not entering the fourth industrial revolution or hopefully entering the age of human where we value and care, say, first line responders. We actually get our arms around what uh, does democracy really mean and how we value it. What what is ethical investment and how can Jess make a fair day with return and work a little bit for it and be happy and give continue giving back? And, you know, how much um, longer can we mess about with climate change? You know, when the teenagers are telling us that we need to pay attention. I used to say in speeches that I gave around the world in the recent years that, you know, we have a legacy as stewards of the built environment to leave something for our grandchildren. I'm now saying we have to do something to give our kids a reasonable chance of a reasonable life because it's now become really serious. So that's that's where I'm coming from. Huge uncertainty. My little group at Six Ideas, we focus upon helping people navigate the way through this uncertainty. And also, and more importantly, is, as I said at the at the top of this session, is to meet new people and to build fresh perspectives and to figure things out without without reference to what I call 20th century thinking. There's too, ma- too many people applying 20th century mindsets and playbooks to what is truly a 21st century problem that we've never seen the like of before. And if I hear of people referencing this to the global financial crisis and it being similar to that, it ain't nothing like it, because this time there's massive systemic change happening right across the world. And that's something that we've never seen before, certainly since the Middle Ages. I love it. Well, Chris, where are the best places for people to connect with you and find out more online? Yeah, I've written the book, Where's My Office? So wheresmyoffice.com will give you a link to buy the book and into my own website to, you know, I sort of describe myself now as an author, an advocate, an advisor, and happy to chat and learn more and to help people build fresh perspectives and hopefully add a bit of value along the way. Yeah, that's great. So George, I'm interested in in one or two of your biggest takeaways that you've learned from Chris here today. 
Oh, I mean, I think there's so much here that I, Chris, we, we're going to have to have many more conversations after this because uh, you've kind of piqued I my curiosity. I think the biggest takeaways for, for me is that that we are still in an experimentation phase. There, it, it does seem like we're, we have some level of certainty because you just at a certain point have to just make decisions and move forward. But I like this, this mindset of thinking about how organizations are going to really need to disrupt how they think about the workplace. Where is it? How do you have access to it? When do you need it? What is it used for? And then I, you mentioned it several times, but how does that become more human? How does it become less about the brick and mortar and more about how it actually serves the person, how it serves the team? That's something I'm very passionate about. And I, I love your, your heart for that. So I think those are the two big takeaways for me. You know, those are great takeaways. For, for me, I feel like I think about how much of life is not divided. You know, we bring our smartphones home. We, we bring our work with us everywhere. You know, like you used to be able to get off work at five. I mean, for most of us, that's yeah. that doesn't happen anymore, you know. And, you know, this idea of like real estate as a service and, and specifically adopting technology. I mean, the real estate space in general has been a slow adopter of technology compared to a lot of industries. And so those folks who can figure it out and, and carve out, you know, carve out some, a category king type position and some elements. And you think about the potential for how much of the real estate world is so siloed. You're either an office investor or you're an apartment REIT or you're something like this. And yet there's the massive success of somebody like a Brookfield that is a little more asset, asset type agnostic and where that could be an advantage of the potential to become an, an omni real estate brand where you're providing, maybe you are providing apartments and workplaces and retail experiences, but the next version of all of that, while having technology make it efficient enough to be able to afford to innovate to me, yeah. like, like, you know, change is such an opportunity for entrepreneurs. And this made me think about some coming changes I, I hadn't considered. So I appreciate that, Chris. Yeah, think Disney. Think if you go to Orlando and you want to take a cruise, you have one one card and everything right. is on one card and it's all integrated. It's seamless. Real estate has got to move to a seamless gig. I love it. Just wave so my good. phone. I'm just going to wave my phone at the door, whatever door I'm going. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, well, thanks for doing this, George. Thanks for making the time to join us and let's stay in touch. Yeah, yeah no, happy to chat, guys. I'm as keen as ever to build connections explore opportunities but also to learn yeah great it's okay. such a pleasure and we'll talk to you yeah. soon okay thanks guys be good